Good morning, everyone. It's Brad here from the Resilience Institute. And today we are talking about resilience in change. So, Dr. Sven, I think before we get started, it's useful to define what resilience is and, and what we're talking about when we talk about change. It's a big subject, a topic of concern. So let's start off with a definition of resilience. Yeah, so it would be real simple. So we, we talk about resilience as a kind of combination of learned skills. You know, one, can you bounce when things go bad? Two, can you continually grow yourself as a physical and emotional and cognitive entity, even spiritual? Third, connecting. You know, connecting to what's important to you, to your family, to your workplace, to nature. Uh, the more connected we are, the more we bounce, in fact, and the more we grow. And, and the final one really is what we call flow. That's that state where you can deploy your skills to do the creative work that really feels right for you. So that's how we define resilience. And I guess when we look at change, change can be many things from a crisis uh, through to a restructure or through to just slow, persistent change. So there are many types and it's important to kind of think that one through. What we're dealing with at the moment is what people call a VUCA change, which is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. For example, Donald Trump has just signed tariffs this morning, New Zealand time. It will affect the world. And it's not waiting on a ship to sail from New York to London. Instantaneously, the markets respond. Companies around the world are suddenly saddled with extra costs, with reduced margins, with reduced volumes. Jobs are threatened. So we're living in a world where multiple things like this are happening all over the globe and they're kind of impacting on us as individuals and on our workplaces moment by moment. And it's volatile. You don't know where it's going to come from and what it's going to do. It's uncertain. What's next? You know, it's complex. They're hitting on every side. You know, look at the GDPR compliance in the EU. And, and of course, it's, it's ambiguous. You know, Is Trump serious or isn't he? It's really hard to know who's telling the truth these days. So those are kind of the two challenges we sit with. In terms of looking at the challenge of adaptation, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, you know, maybe um, if we look at the next slide where we look at this concept of uh, challenge and, uh, and how we respond in that really is the heart of adaptation. So it's complex. Let's make it really, really simple. Effectively, when we relax, the body is optimized. It's, it's homeostatic. In other words, when we're not facing too much challenge or change, we relax, our temperature is steady, our basal metabolic rate is steady, heart rate is steady, blood pressure is steady. Our thinking is quiet, our emotions are peaceful. As we increase the pace of change or challenge, we start to activate our biology and homeostasis is broken. The heart rate increases, our breathing rate increases, it becomes shallow. We increase our blood pressure. We start to feel a little bit of anxiety, what's coming next. We gear up for the challenge, we take a deep breath and we engage. And I guess that's very natural and normal, is that we relax and then we engage. 
Now, in the past, we had lots of time to relax. You know, once you've done the gathering and the hunting for the day, you lay around in the sun or the shade um, as a call. Today, it's relentless. So that activation engagement is perpetual. In other words, we're in that peak state, the red zone, almost all the time. Now, that's very dangerous because what we see in that blue curve is that as you go into that red zone, your performance in the situation actually starts to drop. And it's not easily perceptible. Now, with everyone saying, be busy, come on, you know, be stressed, show that you're active, we're all maxing out almost continuously. And, you know, as many people have said, you cannot sprint a marathon. As a consequence, we've got lots of people in distress where their blood pressure is not just up temporarily, it stays up. The heart rate is continuously accelerated and unsteady. They have symptoms. And you know, these, these are the real issues in organizations going through change, is that people are so pressed that they're actually starting to decompensate. That homeostatic swing between engage, relax is no longer happening, and they're almost perpetually in the engage mode. And that can lead to what we call failure or the condition black, which in the workplace might be we burst into tears, we run out of room, slam a door. It might be that we get angry and swear at someone or strike out. It may, may just be simply that we, we feel real fear. We just cannot make a decision. So condition black, all your performance collapses. So the, the idea, if we flip to the next slide, in handling or adapting to change is, is we're going to have to learn to slow down. You know, and our data shows this with crystal clarity. Successful people, resilient people in, in challenging times are much calmer, much more focused, much more present. And we can look at that data in a moment. So the idea is, Raise your game, engage in condition red from time to time. But if you want to be productive through change, you've got to keep yourself just a little bit more relaxed than the person next to you. And this is a key concept used in sport and military and, um, you know, in any challenging situation. Yeah. So it's all about biological insight. I mean, that's the foundation, isn't it? People are running around and they're not even aware that they're... Um, in distress absolutely absolutely and i think you know that's when we say biological insight it may be that ability to actually read your heart rate or notice your breathing but it could also be the opportunity the ability to be able to see your emotions to notice when you're getting frustrated or a little bit anxious about something and it may also be able to watching your mind so you know what we've often found in these kind of programs if someone is aware of how they're responding half of the problem is sorted. You know, awareness opens the door to the solution. But if you cannot feel your physical, emotional, cognitive responses to change, that's really dangerous. You're at sea. Yeah. Something I like to use when, when, when considering this is, is the idea of the response to challenge curve as a wave, and you need to ride it as a surfer, as you both are. Uh, from from the bottom up to flow, and then make sure that you get back down. You know, if you come off the back, you you are no longer in the zone. You are going to. Um, That's absolutely right. Yes, yes. Uh, it's, a, it's a way of looking at it. 
shall I skip ahead to the next slide? Yeah, sure. Because I think, you know, the, the next one, this kind of captures um, some of the research we've been doing over the last 18 months. So, so you understand this, we, we have a 60-factor diagnostic. This one, in fact, is this data is drawn from 21,000 people over the last 18 months. What we tried to do here was to, to look at the top 10% of that 21,000 people as compared to the middle and the bottom. All right, and we rank that 10% in what we call the resilience ratio. And then we looked at it against the factors where there was a real difference. So essentially what we're asking here is, what do resilient people or high-performing people on a multiple of factors, what do they actually do? How do they operate as compared to someone who, who's perhaps struggling with the change and the challenges in their life? So for example, if you look at the green, the first factor, and, and not surprisingly, I suppose, is that high performers are focused. They're absolutely clear on what they need to do. Whereas for people who are struggling, focus is rarely answered in that often, very often, almost always category. And you know, I, I think of this, if we look at the green in sort of three sections, there'd be three things I think we could encourage people to look at. And the first is, is kind of that uh, cognitive area. So focus, uh, the, the ability to be present, to be really in that moment, the wave you talked about, Brad, and, and decisive. You know, those are true cognitive competencies. And you can see in all of those, high-performing people simply don't compromise on those cognitive factors. Whereas if you look at the scores for people who, who are struggling, they really struggle with those, right? So it's a clear invitation uh, to a leader, to someone in a team, to think about, are we clearly focused? Are we really present to this challenge? And, you know, are we feeling decisive? Do, are we making decisions? Because one of the big challenges, of course, in change is as you go too far over that curve, fear grabs you that fear or anxiety blocks your ability to make decisions. That's kind of the first cluster. Second one we've been curious about is if you look at purpose with fulfillment, with optimism, that's really hope in the future, and, um, and values alignment, we get another cluster of, of interesting things. We would call these flow elements or spirit and action elements. You know, you have a clear purpose. You know what you, you're living for and, and why you're doing what you're doing. Fulfillment, you know, it, it's, it's joyous. You're loving what you do. And um, values alignment, you feel there's really good alignment between what you're, um, what you're doing and what you believe in. And then, of course, the optimism or that ability to think about the future with hope. Uh, that little cluster is very, very important. And that is probably one of the most important ideas in leadership. You know, if you want to lead your team, or if you want to work for a team, seek a leader, you know, who's good at defining purpose, who, who looks at the whole person, as many of our clients talk about now, in terms of fulfillment, not just as a worker, but as a human being, as a parent and a family member. Um, and obviously the attention to values and culture uh, really, really important. And then possibly the third grouping, which is perhaps more physical. You know, if we look at the importance of, of vitality, the huge difference there, 
of uh, bounce, you know, that ability to take the, the knocks and bounce back quickly and sleep quality. Those are sort of slightly more physical, physiological elements in, in the mix. But I think it creates a really interesting picture of what the most Brazilian people are doing and how they're actually working their way through this volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous world we're, we're living in. I mean, what's remarkable is the, the extreme difference between the top and the bottom 10%. Indeed, indeed. And, and Brad, I know you, you've been very involved in, in delivering these numbers and then you may like to make some comments around the red stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's almost the opposite. And you start to see on the, on the red side, the factors where the bottom 10% are actually scoring a lot worse than the top 10%. And you can see for some of those factors like apathy and self-doubt, the top 10%, they're just not registering. It's not there. Whereas the bottom 10%, some of these are really high. The, the bottom 10% people are feeling the intensity at work. They're obviously overloaded. Yeah, it's, it's the opposite of that decisiveness. They're not sure what to focus on because they feel overwhelmed. There's that fatigue again, which is the opposite of the vitality. They're not able to uh, energize their body effectively. They don't have those practices that the top 10% have in place. So, you know, from a, from a factor level, you can see quite clearly that there are areas to focus on for the bottom 10%. And, and you know, yeah, they're a little bit all over the place. They're struggling to, to just get by. They're clinging on. Something that's interesting, you know, the famous quote that Mahatma Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. Can people learn to improve in these skills? Yeah, I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful picture for, for us that. And, and I think, you know, we encourage our, our clients now to look at that and to consider how that matches their own experience of, of life. You know, one example, I remember back, uh, and I learned this from one of our clients, but when the kids were small, um, you see that word apathy in the middle of the red boxes. Uh, apathy comes from the question, I feel flat, basically, got no energy, tired, exhausted. And um, when our children used to say they're tired, I used to respond, Hansons don't do tired. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. You see that in absolute zero. It's just, you know, high performance simply. And I think maybe there's a, there's a, a caution here. When you see a zero on self-doubt, hypervigilance and apathy and worry, I guess one of the questions to push back at high performance is maybe sometimes you might need to slow down. Sometimes you may need to just question yourself. And this is where a coach can be so useful. And as, as you know, many of us know, we call CEO disease. You know, as you get higher and higher up an organization, people are less willing to give you the bad news. And you're so focused on presenting the best possible face as leader that sometimes I think you can become overconfident. Overconfident. So, so you know, just in there, I think it's just a subtle warning you know, play a good game, but be humble. You know, one of our team calls this assertive humility. It's good. You know, you, you, you play hard, you play consciously, you play uh, firmly with that which is on the green, but be a little humble, right? Because it's very easy when you're on a roll to, to become overconfident, and that's a risk in, in this rapidly changing time.
So you were going to mention uh, hormesis. Yeah, so that, that's uh, an interesting word which has not really uh, caught on. So we mentioned earlier homeostasis. And the homeostasis, you know, in very, very simple terms, take blood pressure, temperature, heart rate, it likes a mid-range. You know, your heart rate can accelerate up under, under extreme exercise, for example, and then it can slow right down in your deep sleep. And then it comes back to the center. So you don't want to be too steady, but homeostasis is when you're moving in a comfortable range and the body keeps coming back to that neutral position. Now, change, of course, presses us physically, emotionally, cognitively hard. And, and that's, if you like, external stress. It's a challenge to our biology, physical, emotional, cognitive. And we try and get back. Hormesis is the idea. It actually came from a long time ago that, that the idea was if you took a tiny dose of a poison, it actually made you stronger. All right? So you don't take a fatal dose, but you take a little bit of a poison on a regular basis and it made you tougher. And, you know, in, in very simple terms, you all know this is the case. If you get out there and you do your favorite exercise on a daily basis and have the odd day off, you, know, you push your body, you get fitter, you do it again, you do it again, you do it again. Guess what? Your homeostasis changes, right? And the body goes through a reset. And what you start noticing is your heart rate's no longer running at 80 beats per minute. Your resting heart rate is 50 beats per minute. Wow. It's saving your heart. Hence, we have people who exercise on a regular basis. They're fitter. Their minds are better. Emotions are better. They think better. Because the difference between a heart rate of 80 and a heart rate of 50 is profound. And so hormesis is this idea where you're building muscles, where you're going out there and greeting someone with a really positive smile. If you're doing you know, the idea of random acts of kindness, if you're really working on keeping your brain steady when things are crazy, you're actually training the body to adapt. And um, that hormesis is very interesting because it's in fact what we're trying to do in that resilient spiral. You know, instead of just accepting I'm here, it's actually every day practicing being higher until it becomes a learned skill. And that's a really important idea. And I think, you know, if you're going to apply, it's probably happening to all of us. But if we could start seeking change and welcoming it and say, wow, this is really interesting. Let's see how we can work in this new change. You know, let's not do the apathy, the overload, the self-critical, the intensity, the worry. Let's stay calm. Let's stay focused. Let's be really present. So we actually, as Steve Hansen, the All Black coach, said in the last World Cup, we are comfortable with the uncomfortable. All right. Now, World Cup is all about pressure. Very serious pressure from your nation, from the world, from each other, from the coaches. It's very intense. So to be comfortable in that pressure is is something that can only come from practice. You've got to be very deliberate about it. So it's a new normal. So instead of being, ah, in a crisis, when something happens, hey, this is what happens in our world. I stay calm. I stay focused. 
I'm still decisive. Yeah, very important idea, hormesis. Uh, we could maybe just think about it as training or drilling, you know, actually drilling specific physical, emotional, cognitive skills so that you can be in a new state in challenge and change. And as with any skills, you can have an objective and practice and get there and build your emotions to a new level, build your cognitive ability to a new yes. level. Yes. And it's quite a new idea. You know, what you're describing there, Brad, is, is uh, you know, that confidence that actually I've been feeling quite sad. Some people th see that, oh, that's my genes or it's my biology. It's a very outdated idea. You know, we know for sure that there is systematic, repeated evidence now to show that you can practice happiness. You know, it's one of our recent blog, blog posts on joy. It's a choice. We have to own it. You know? no, not to own the sadness or the depression, but to know that we can practice it. Yeah, good point. It's an exciting idea that we are in control of our own adaptation. So let's, let's talk about some tactical ways to deal with this, this influx of change and, and chaos that happens. So the vagal break is, is simply referring to the vagus nerve. And we've written about this and, and there's more on the website. And we really encourage people to think about it. In simple terms, homeostasis is run by your vagal nerve. It's the relaxer. It calms us down. It allows digestion to happen. It allows the heart to slow, the blood pressure to drop. Interestingly, though, this vagus nerve also affects your voice. Your voice becomes melodic and easily listened to when the vagus nerve is on. Your ears are open. You can hear the full range of sound and your face is much more active. When we face too much change and the sympathetic system fires, that's the heavy engagement, the condition red, all of those connection abilities to talk to people, to listen, to express emotion on your face, get dampened down. Even your ability to hear children or high-pitched voices is dampened. So probably at a physiological level, if there's one central thing I think we could all think about is how do I quickly apply my vagus nerve? And all we're talking about here, as many of you know, lengthen the spine, soften the belly, keep it low, exhale over, over at least ideally five to six seconds, and just repeat that slow breathing through the nose, using the diaphragm, roughly four seconds in, six seconds out and allow your attention to just rest on the breath. That is a very reliable way to trigger this vagus nerve and to bring yourself back to a functional place where your physiology is relaxed, your emotions are calm, you're open to other people and your mind is clear and decisive. Yeah, absolutely. And in our workshops, we often demonstrate this using the heart rate variability model. Yeah, a complicated idea that can be made very simple. And Steve, I think we've written uh, plenty and talked a lot about this, but I think it's something that we know from the data. People underestimate the impact of sleep. We are not sleeping enough, roughly an hour less than we need per night on average as an adult. Teenagers, maybe two hours less than they need. Our biological clocks are desynchronized. And for many of us, the quality of sleep is very disrupted and broken. 
So, you know, we just just recommend, and we've actually written something recently on on this um, on LinkedIn. Is is that there are three questions you need to answer with your sleep. One, are you getting enough? You know, it's probably about seven and a half hours a day. Work out what your body needs, secure it. Two, make sure you go to bed in a warm, uh, warm light, yellow light, that you avoid the blue light of your screens for at least an hour to an hour and a half before you sleep and probably get to bed early-ish. And then if you can, wake up and get some blue light, that dawn blue light in your eye. That resets the clock. Every time you disturb yourself with light during the night, you can disrupt this clock. It takes very little. Just a car going by and a reflection of those lights on your, on your curtains is enough to disrupt the clock. And the third thing, you know, have a really good habit of when you do go to sleep, learn to keep your mind really, really calm and peaceful. And that will help you go into the cycles of deep and dreaming sleep. And that tactical breathing can help here as well. Absolutely. Absolutely, they're so connected. All right, we'll jump, jump ahead to the non-negotiables. Yeah, and then last one, uh, sorry, second last one, just simply put in place your rhythm. So, you know, you may like to go back to some of those comments about what high-performing people do and see how you might link that into your day. You know, what do you do each day to focus on focus? What do you do for joy and pleasure? You know, how do you, what are the things you're going to be really present to uh, during the day? Put into a schedule and then run a rhythm. And we know that high performers really flourish with rhythm. And the reason is you don't have to think about it. You know that you're gonna get up, do these stretches, and then you're off to the gym. So it's not shall I, shan't I, shall I, shan't I, oh, it's a bit cold. There's none of that noise in your head. You just do, you execute. And uh, that can be really, really useful. You know, it's the same reason um, people like Steve Jobs would just have the same clothes. So he never had to think, you know, shall I wear a suit or shall I wear it? It was just only one set of clothes, period. Thinking is obliterated. Uh, and that's this idea of rhythm or what are the non-negotiables that a video would see in you every day. And that really links very closely to the last one, which is uh, this concept of focus. And, you know, I think in, in this changing volatile world, maybe this is the single most important idea. In a nutshell, our brains, our thoughts, the activity in our heads can either be present to this moment or they can be focused on something in the past or something in the future. If we focus on the future, in most cases, it will generate fear and anxiety. Oh, have I done this? What about the mortgage? Oh, is it going to rain tomorrow? We worry. Some people can say, you know what, I'm really looking forward to tomorrow. Good leaders carefully structure future-based thinking towards hope rather than fear. But some data tells us that 95% of the time when we think about the future, we go into fear and worry. On, on the, the past side, obviously the, the upside is if we look at something and say, look, that was a really interesting meeting we had yesterday. I know we didn't get the result we wanted, but here's what we can learn. That's constructive reflection on the past. But again, in the vast majority of cases, we go in the past and we say things like, I shouldn't have, I'm such a loser. And we rerun these thoughts about a past event 
That's called rumination, and we end up in depression. All right, and that's when it's very self-focused. When we are focused on someone else, he shouldn't have done that. It triggers the body into anger. All right, so suffering at the end of the day is really when we're not present. So there's one simple idea to take out of the session. Be clear about being present. All right, notice when the mind flips about and keep bringing yourself back into the present. All right, that'll allow you to surf that wave of change. That's a powerful message, and it's really encouraging to know that uh, we can deal with change skillfully by just being aware of bringing ourselves back to the present. Oh, absolutely. That's it for today. Uh, we'll include some links in the show notes for everyone. And thanks so much, Dr. Sven. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Brad. Look forward to the next one.